Amen, amen. Thank you, Nick. Good morning, church. Thank you for having me, and thank you so much for the warm reception. I'm not surprised by that. I love this church very much, and and I'm thankful for you. And that's the greatest thing about the Spirit of God, right? Wherever you go, you're with brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. A building is not a church. The church is a body of believers who love Jesus Christ and follow Him faithfully. Isn't that exciting? Um, I'm excited by the Spirit of God. Um, I don't know the proper etiquette for this, but I'll try it out. All right, I think the water goes there. Perfect. If you could have your Bibles open to Ruth chapter 2, Ruth chapter 2, and you're just going to want to kind of leave that open. Uh, we're walking through all 23 verses. That's right, this is a three and a half hour sermon. Um, I'm not used to two services, so we're just going to meander right on through that second one. They can join us if they like. I hear there's extra room now in the trailer. Quad, I apologize. And while you were turning their church, who here remembers uh, the film Saving Private Ryan? Have you ever seen that movie before? Um, for those of you who may not remember or may not have ever seen that movie, the beginning of this film uh, opens up with an older man walking through the Normandy uh, American Cemetery and Memorial in France. Uh, he's with his wife, he is with his children, he is with his grandchildren. And the man stops at a grave and he sort of just collapses uh, at the grave. And he starts weeping. And the scene cuts immediately to the invasion at Normandy decades before, and the story of a rescue mission starts to unfold. During this week in the movie uh, surrounding the invasion, three of four brothers belonging to the same family have been killed in battle, have been killed in combat. And the last remaining brother, is, uh, his name is Private James Francis Ryan. He was missing somewhere behind enemy lines. So this rescue mission's job is to go find Private Ryan and bring him home to his mother, who has already received word that she now has only one son left of her four. By the end of the movie, uh, they find Ryan. Almost uh, the entire uh, platoon has been killed. Uh, and Captain John, who's played by Tom Hanks, if you remember, Captain John, he is uh, mortally wounded there at the final scene at the bridge, and as his life slips away from him, uh, Private Ryan leans over to hear the captain's final words, and Captain John Miller grabs him by the shirt, brings him down, and says, earn this. Earn it. And it's just kind of a gripping moment, and then suddenly you're, you're you know, transported back to the beginning scene. You see Private Ryan's face as an old man. This is who the old man ended up being was Private Ryan. He's surrounded by generations of people. He's weeping uncontrollably, and his wife comes up to him, caretaking. That's what wives do. They're coming up supporting. Hey, are you okay? The grave he is standing over is Captain John Miller's. But this is what I want us to catch. It is at that moment Private Ryan asks his wife if he has led a good life, if he has been a good man, and she assures him, And the movie ends. The image of an older man looking back on his life, wondering if he has led a good life, is a sobering image, isn't it? Can you imagine someone laying down his life for you so that your life might be spared and then living each day trying to earn what it cost for your life to be saved? For those of us resting in Christ Jesus, this is not a hypothetical question. We have experienced this in our Savior, Jesus Christ. The problem, though, and here's the problem, is just like Private Ryan, many of us struggle with feeling as if we need to earn 
the gift of life that has been graciously given to us. We fail to embrace wholly the gift given to us, and therefore, we're tempted and often believe we need to live in such a way to earn that salvation, that we need to live in such a way that we are going to be worth it, that we can develop or create enough accolades in our life that that will be enough to justify us when, in fact, the entire gospel speaks differently of how that gift occurs and that we could do nothing and that our best is filthy rags when it comes to trying to earn our salvation in Christ Jesus. Do we truly know what it means to be redeemed? Do we truly know what it means to be adopted by God while we were dead in our trespasses and sins? Not while we were friends, but while we were enemies with God. We've been adopted by salvation. We've been adopted by faith. Is that still heavy to you today as it was the first day you ever really understood it? There's something gotten lost in the Bible Belt culture or in the desensitization of what it means to get up at the same time every week and come to a body of believers that you love, that you serve, that you learn from, but is the weight still there of what your life cost? The blood of Jesus Christ, an innocent, perfect Savior, slaughtered, so that we can have reconciliation with God once again. Some of you are looking and going, what does this have to do with Ruth 2? It actually has a lot to do with Ruth 2. Before my wife and I were married, uh, she said there was something that I had to watch. That's a very weird question, or a very kind of a weird proposal. It's like, all right, whatever it takes to marry you, ha <laughs> ha. That something was Pride and Prejudice. Not the movie, the miniseries. It's a huge difference when it comes to Pride and Prejudice fans, apparently. So I went and got the movie, and they're like, um, what is this? You're looking for the miniseries, okay? It's not Colin Firth, it's trash, is what I was told. And there's one particular reason why many uh, women seem to flock to Pride and Prejudice in this way, and his name is Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy, his character in Pride and Prejudice, he's open and honest with young Elizabeth, right? He, he doesn't try to change her. He listens. And there was like a time in the middle of watching this where I realized, I understand why you're trying to get me to watch this movie. Like, I'm not as stupid as I look. You know, I understand. He listens. He doesn't try to change her. You're, you're preparing me for this. Like, I'm sorry. I'm catching on. Now, there's a bigger picture than the story of just Ruth and Boaz and Ruth too. Much more for Christians today to understand. But here's one thing I want to get out of the way. Mr. Darcy doesn't hold a candle to Boaz. Not a candle. Not only would Boaz probably beat him in an arm wrestling contest, he's just a generally a better guy. And I'm not slamming Mr. Darcy. Please don't give out my email because I don't want to anger Pride and Prejudice fans. If you aren't familiar with the story of Ruth or if you've never read Chapter 1, let me do my best to recap uh, what has taken place before Boaz enters the picture and in the verse and the passages that uh, Dan read. This will set the stage for our passage today. So overview of Ruth chapter 1, uh, kind of in a nutshell. The story really starts, revolves around Naomi. Naomi had a husband named Elimelech and two sons, and they lived in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is called the house of bread, but there was a time in Bethlehem where there was a famine and there was no bread. 
And so Elimelech led his family, Naomi and his sons, to leave behind the promised land, leave behind Bethlehem, and go to the land of compromise, which in this case is the land called Moab. Now, Moab has a very storied history, a very checkered past, specifically with Israel, with the promised land. So the Moabites, I don't know if you knew this, were begun when Lot, the nephew of Abraham, had an inappropriate relationship uh, with his daughter, not a very proud past, and then there was a point in the Old Testament where the Moabites had actually countered the Israelites, where Moabite women had seduced Israelite men into immorality and idolatry, and this action brought the judgment of God upon the people of Israel to such a degree that 24,000 Israelites were killed as a result of what Moabite women had done in seducing Israelite men. This was the history between these two places. You're like, that's pretty heavy. That's what happened. This is the history, and this is why there's such tension and pain between the two of these places. And so needless to say, the relationships between Israelites and Moabites weren't best friendom, right? So given that history, how do you think, how do you think Moabites viewed Israelites? And how do you think Israelites viewed Moabites? Not a lot of Christmas cards being exchanged between these two places. So we get this picture of Elimelech leading his family of all places to Moab. He is an Israelite. He is living in Bethlehem, and he is leaving Bethlehem because there's no food there to go to Moab. Now, when they get there, Elimelech dies, right? This is not part of the plan. And so Naomi is left with her two sons who end up marrying Moabite women. So now she has no husband. She has two sons. Both are married to Moabite women. She finds herself in a foreign land with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And then after around ten childless years, where neither of the sons were able to have children, her sons then unexpectedly die, and she is now left alone. Picture Naomi for a second here. Born and raised. Bethlehem, Israel. Her husband brings her out of Israel into Moab. And now in Moab, she loses her husband, she loses both of her sons, she has no grandchildren, and she has two Moabite daughters-in-law with the past that I just explained to you. This is a less than ideal circumstance. So here's what happens. She hears the news that bread has returned to Bethlehem. There's food there now. And so she begins a journey back. And on the way, she tries to dissuade Orpah and Ruth from coming with her. Now, Orpah is dissuaded. She turns back. She's going to get a fresh new start in Moab, where she is comfortable. But Ruth, in 1, 16 and 17, says one of the most majestic pictures of commitment in all of Scripture. Ruth clings to Naomi and says, I'm going with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And I'm going to be buried with you. How's that for a mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship? Some of you were like, this is amazing. How do you do that? (laughs) And she commits herself to stay with Naomi. And so the end of Ruth 1 pictures Ruth and Naomi coming together into Bethlehem. So imagine all the people who knew Naomi are coming up to her and saying, hey, Naomi, which means, by the way, pleasant or lovely. And she looks back at them and she says this, my name is no longer Naomi. I went away with everything I loved, and I came back with nothing. 
My name is now Mara. The word means bitterness. Sorry if anyone's named Mara in here. That was not the intention. I thought about that later. <laughs> this is really not a great sermon for those who are named Mara. So they're just going to sit there and go, I'm bitter? I'm not bitter. But you are because I said Mara is bitterness. So that was the whole plan. Naomi goes on to say, <clears throat> God has afflicted me and he has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi is bitter. Naomi has once experienced blessedness and now she is just angry and sad. So there she stands with Ruth by her side, a picture of her husband's sin, and leaving the promised land behind to go off to another land has come back to Bethlehem with Ruth. And that's where the, Ruth of, uh, that's where the chapter 1 in Ruth ends. They're back in Bethlehem. She's now going by Mara, and she is bitter. But here's what sets a great stage for chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 23. With the times where we're the most bitter, the times where we feel like everything is falling apart, times where we feel like everything is crashing down, did you know that God is still working? We think everything is going our way when everything is sunshine. But we forget, we're tempted to forget that God is still working even in the midst of our sorrow and pain. He's not less sovereign because we're going through tough times. He's still in complete control. And in chapter 1, we see God in his sovereign design ordains sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for what will be surprising triumph. In chapter 2, verse 1, so just follow along with me. We actually are really taking this uh, verse by verse. Mike will be so proud. Boaz enters the picture as things look really bad for Ruth and Naomi. And there's two things you need to know about Big Bo, okay? One... He was from the clan of Elimelech, okay? Ruth doesn't know this, but Boaz is from the clan of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. Israelite society works this way. You are part of a family. That family is a part of a clan, and different clans are made up of tribes. And Elimelech's clan was the most important social family group in Israelite society. It's like being in Callahan and being a Higginbotham. Same deal, just as important. Some of you are like, what does that even mean? Some of you are like, I get that. It makes perfect sense. There were rules. There were always rules in that society about caring for people in your clan, things you were supposed to do, things you wouldn't even think about not doing when it came to people in your family. And the second thing about Big Bo is he was a man of standing, which this could mean wealth. It could mean character. It was probably both. This is how Gideon was described in Judges chapter 6, a man of might or valor. In verse 2, Ruth is going to pick up leftover grain. That's what she's going to go do. And there was a law that you need to know that needs to that help this make sense. It was the law of God for landowners to leave sections or corners of the land to those who were poor. So that after they got their grain, the poor could come and get theirs, so they would have enough to be sustained, so they would have enough to eat. Ruth is saying, I hope to find a landowner actually obeying God's commands so my mother-in-law and I don't starve to death. She is a foreign woman in the Israelite culture, and she is in desperate need of favor. Verse 3, this is where it gets really good. In verse 3, you see, as it turned out, when you see that phrase, as it turned out, this is our, as luck would have it. Aren't we tempted to say that a lot? As luck would have it. Of all the fields that she could end up in, she ends up in Boaz's field. 
Brothers and sisters, you need to hold on to this truth. Nothing happens by accident in the economy of God. Everything happens by divine appointment. Everything. There's will, there's nature, absolutely. But key word, ultimately, we are not driven nor are we caught up in some blind, impersonal force or chance or universe in the way they mean it when they say that. There is a sovereign God orchestrating the events of his people for our good and for his glory at all times. It's even better in verse 4. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. Uh Uh-oh. Ruth just happened upon this field and Boaz shows up at the exact same time. Starting to get romantic. This is the part where Mr. Darcy starts fearing for his reputation. Man, have you ever been watching um, like a sappy movie with your wife that really wasn't your idea? I'm sure this is relatable. And have you ever been watching it and the events start to unfold and all you can think about in the back of your head is how ridiculous and illogical this movie is? You know, like they always say based on true events and you're like, no, not very, not very based, very loosely based maybe. So you're sitting there, and you haven't looked at your wife for a while because you're watching the movie, and in your head you're like, this is just so ridiculous, this is illogical. And I look over, and my wife will either be doing one of two things. Her first thing is just enveloped in the plot, like, there's something, there's life, there's love again, like my marriage is so dead and horrible, but there's happiness, you know, in this movie with actors. Or she'll just be covered in tears going... God works like this. God, God does. And I'm sitting there going, no, he doesn't. Like, you know, there's logic and rationale, and I know everything God's going to do before he does it, right? Like, that's what makes sense, is that I'm in control, obviously. He wouldn't not let me in on his plans if he was going to do something. I mean, I'm everything, right? No, but you look at that, and you make fun of your wife in that sense, or at least I do, a bad husband, and you sit there, and you go, no, maybe she's actually right. In these ridiculous, illogical details to us, God is still working. He's interweaving. He's moving. And guess what? If there is no accident and everything is by divine appointment, then there have been some things that have happened in our lives that we will say is just a coincidence or just luck that God has a greater and bigger purpose for. That's what faith is, isn't it? It's that we don't know how the outcome is going to happen but we know who is in control of the outcome. That's the important part. Verse 4, Boaz greets the harvesters with the Lord be with you. And you can tell a lot about a man in the Old Testament by the first words he says. And right now we see a man of God. As the harvesters respond with the Lord, bless you. We see remnants of this in our church on Resurrection Sunday or Easter when I say or someone says he is risen and someone responds with he is risen indeed. This is a reminder of our Redeemer. Then in verse 5, Boaz says basically, and I know this may be offensive to some, this is what he says, check her out. He does. He says, check her out. He doesn't ask the foreman who is that, but asks who she belongs to. This is not a check her out in some fashion or form of lust. This is check her out. Who is that? I'm immediately drawn to whoever that is. Where is she coming from? Who does she belong to? The foreman then replies with Moabite, master, not from here at all. Foreman tells Boaz what Ruth is here to do. And at that moment, Boaz makes a beeline for her. He goes straight to Ruth. 
And this is where we left off in our reading, by the way. So we're coming up to verses 8 through 9 in chapter 2. Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. That is what they call an Old Testament pickup line. Okay? Doesn't sound too sharp. But when you think about it, she is in need and he is providing for her, ladies. She needs, and he is providing for her men. This is incredible. This is important. This is blowing her mind. He has not only a sense of duty here, but he is showing this woman who believes herself to be defiled, who believes herself to be less than everyone around her, he is showing her pure, unconditional grace and mercy. And one thing we need to realize is she, for the first time ever, may feel protected and cared for in that one statement. I don't think you realize maybe how scandalous this is. The the picture here is caught up in the phrase, you stay here. Ruth, don't go anywhere else. Stay here. This is the same phrase used back in Genesis 2, verses 24 through 25, when we see the picture of marriage and the husband leaving his family and cleaving, clinging to his wife says, stay here. He he, he utters this line, I've told the men not to touch you. Mr. Darcy never said anything like that. I've told the men not to, I couldn't pull that line off. My voice would crack or something in the middle of it. I'd be like, told the men not to touch, you know, like I was trying to come across something I wasn't. I said, get out of here, man, dudes. Unfortunately, it was common in that day for women, particularly foreigners, to be abused or mistreated. And at the very least, insulted while they were in the fields. So Boaz comes up and he says, I told them not to touch you. I told them not to look at you the wrong way. And I'm starting to get in the feeling, by the way, after reading this, that Boaz was the kind of guy who could back up his threats. The kind of guy who had the stature to make them and mean them. You need to understand, this is so incredibly controversial. Boaz crossed cultural lines, societal no-nos. He says, you can drink from these jars. This is a day when foreigners filled jars for Israelites to drink, and women filled jars for men to drink. So what do you have? You have Israelite men filling jars for a Moabite woman at the request of the master of the field. Here's where it all comes together in verse 10. She exclaimed, and this is Ruth's question to Boaz, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? That's the question of the chapter right there, isn't it? She is in need of favor, and now she sits there shocked. And in verse 11, Boaz replies with this. I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your mother and your father and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord. Listen to this phrase, underline verse 12. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The imagery here is you have planted, Ruth, your life under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel, under his wings, and you have taken refuge. And then Ruth responds with, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. 
You have given me comfort and spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. Basically, Ruth just said, though I am on the lowest rung of the social ladder, you have comforted my heart and you have spoken to my soul. It's the kind of language that in Ruth 1, 16 through 17, when she spoke to Naomi, left Naomi speechless, and now Ruth is the speechless one. And the same thing happens here between verses 13 through 14. There's a pause, and Boaz says nothing in return. And then the stage is set for verse 14. There's time that passes here during the day, and it says a mealtime. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. Let's take a look at verse 14 for just a second. Basically, what's happened is Ruth and Boaz have just had their first date at Olive Garden. (laughs) When you think Olive Garden, the first thing you think of is just like crazy amounts of bread. At least that's what I always think of, you know. And and like my dad is so conspiracy-minded, he thinks Olive Garden's out to make him full so he doesn't eat his meal. I'm like, Dad, what would that do to Olive Garden if you don't order an entree and just eat all the free bread? Like it's a weird conspiracy to have. But at the middle of the the table, there's a plate, and it's usually filled with, like, oil and vinegar and, like, some seasoning, right? And I don't know what else, some magic potion, because you're just lapping that thing up by the end of it, like, just drinking it. Nectar from the gods. I don't know what it is. That's the picture here. Boaz, in verse 14, tells her to eat till she's full. There's no greater words a woman could ever hear from a man. He's not just saying, eat till she's full. The only time I ever say that to my wife is when I have a gift card. <laughs> eat, till, eat till you're full, honey. It was a good Christmas. He's got the bill. Whatever you want, Ruth, eat until you're completely full. I've got the bill. I'm paying for it. In 15 and 16, he warns his men to provide and protect her. He says, don't you dare embarrass her and do not make her feel rebuked. Most importantly, and please, young men, listen up to this part. He does not make her feel like she has to do anything to earn his favor. Nothing. He is kind for the sake of his God. He is kind because he knows he should be kind. God is correcting much in my life by giving me a wife that I adore and two baby girls that I cherish. And in that, he's reminding me how I should have behaved, how I should have been with women my age when I was younger. How I should have been more caretaking. I was a brother in Christ, not a place for them to feel rebuke or shame so that my ego could go up. But they should have been able to run to me away from what the world was doing. And I should have been able just to love them like a brother in Jesus. This is one of the things we sacrifice when we run to the world, when we run to idols, when we seek to appease our flesh. And worst of all, we seek to be appeased by the voice and the proclamation of man instead of God who holds the keys to everything. I always found that that was very weird when people would very confidently say, only God can judge me. What a terrifying statement that is. How about, how about I would rather 15,000 men judge me than one holy God? 
yet we brag in that statement. Just shines a light on our flesh when we see men like Boaz who proclaim to be that of God actually act like they are of God, that their belief has actually matched their behavior. And it's far too rare a thing these days. In verse 17, So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an epfah. So this is about 30 to 50 pounds. Now a little perspective here. Ancient Babylonia, average ration for a male worker per day was only one to two pounds. One to two pounds every day. So she just walked away with 30 to 50 pounds. And obviously at this point, you've got to think Ruth's doing some type of Moabite CrossFit. 30 to 50 pounds on her back, headed back to her mother-in-law. Ruth brings it back home, and Naomi's jaw hits the floor. Remember, remember, Naomi has not been introduced to Boaz. Ruth has no idea that Boaz is from the clan of Elimelech, Naomi's ex-husband, or uh, widowed husband, right? She's, been, she's a widow. Ruth reaches in her back pocket and gives her what was left from the meal so that Naomi is fed. It's been a good day, Naomi. Remember the last time we saw Naomi, she was Mara, right? Bitterness. But she has now gone from bitterness to blessedness. Have you ever thought that in the middle of our sorrow and suffering, God may just be plotting for our satisfaction? Not just our satisfaction in anything, but our satisfaction in Him. Sometimes we really need to stop asking questions and just trust a sovereign God who has never broken a promise. We must relinquish our need to control lives we can't possibly control. But don't just relinquish it for relinquish's sake. Give it up to the one who can handle what we're going through, the one who has asked for it. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Verse 30, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why are we holding on to these? things that are anchoring us to the ground, when Christ has said, I not only can do it, I'm asking for it. Let go. The other side of brokenness is an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, yet we are just clinging to idols no matter how badly they drag us down. God's not just saying, I've got you. He goes, I'm the only one who could get you. I'm the only one who could take it. Now, at this point in the story, Ruth knows where she's been working, in the fields of Boaz, but Ruth doesn't know the significance of Boaz. Naomi knows who Boaz is, but she doesn't know whose field Ruth has been working in. You think Naomi's happy now. And what the author does in Ruth 2 is very intentional. The very next sentence that Ruth says, the author makes sure to save the name of whose field she has been working in until the very last word in the sentence. So it's kind of building, right? As hearers of what we're experiencing and reading, as readers of the story, what we were doing is we were just looking at Naomi's face. We cannot wait for her to hear whose field Ruth had been in. Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, and Naomi is stunned The Lord bless him, she says. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. The two words to circle is at the very end of verse 20. Kinsmen redeemers. Some of your translations may say guardian redeemer. Leviticus has set up a picture where kinsmen redeemer 
is a twofold picture. Kinsman, one who is a relative, one who is a part of a family or clan, would have a right of redemption, a right to purchase, a right to buy back property, to provide for someone whose family had left them destitute, someone whose husband had died. The kinsman redeemer is one who delivers and rescues someone in danger. He redeems property of person who has become defiled. Yahweh, for instance, is Israel's redeemer, the one who promises to defend and vindicate them. He is both father and deliverer. There are numerous, numerous Old Testament appeals to God as rescuer of the weak and needy and perseverer of the sheep of Israel. And so Ruth realizes that this is not just some extremely honorable man who has helped her that day. This is a kinsman redeemer. Then Ruth said this, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. And so like all good mother-in-laws, Naomi begins plotting the next step. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. Basically, I'm only thinking of you. Ruth 2.22. So you stay in those fields, and that's exactly what she does. And the last verse of chapter 2. See, we made it through the whole chapter. That wasn't hard. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now listen to this, Mercy Hill. What do we have to learn from Ruth 2? What I want to do is I want to show you two facets of the gospel that are emphasized here in this chapter. I want us to think first and foremost about the gospel according to Boaz. This is one of the things I love most about the book of Ruth. This is what makes it such a challenge to get into, because it doesn't really mention God. In the verses, there's not like a declaration of Yahweh. There's not a declaration of God himself, but through the characters of the book of Ruth, we see the attributes of the holy God we worship. We see characters in this ultimately revealing the character of God to us. So God is showing his love for Naomi, how? Through radical devotion from her daughter-in-law. God is showing his concern for the poor and the foreigner. How? By Boaz's concern for the poor, the alien. What we're seeing in the characters in the story is a picture of the character of God. This is intentional. Where the author of Ruth is showing us a picture, a glimpse of the character of God that helps us to understand the gospel and the character of Boaz. Think about what Boaz does in Ruth chapter 2. One, he seeks the outcast as his family. We see it over and over again from verse 2 all the way to verse 21. Two, he shelters the weak under his wings. He's not only showing unconditional kindness, but she knows that under Boaz, that's where she is being protected. He's sheltering the weak under his wings. Have you ever really gotten into habitual sin as a believer in Jesus Christ, stayed there and felt less protected by your holy God? Have you ever felt distant? That the sin was destroying you, was keeping you from having as intimate a relationship with Christ as you could have. Third, he serves the hungry at his table. In our blessings, very few of us know what it is like to be without food, to not know if food is coming at all. And Ruth didn't know if food was coming. And food came because of the kindness of Boaz. She, it not only was thrown at her or handed at her, but he invited her, an enemy, to sit at his table and eat with him. And finally, he showers the needy with his grace. Day one, she's walking away with 30 to 50 pounds of grain. 
He seeks the outcast as his family. He shelters the weak under his wings. He serves the hungry at his table. And Boaz showers the needy with his grace. Boaz, after a series of divinely appointed circumstances, willingly takes Ruth as his wife. And together, they bear a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David. Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David. The forefather of Jesus Christ. In Ruth 3.9, we see a beautiful picture of the needy supplicant, unable to rescue herself, requesting of the kinsman redeemer that he cover her with his protection, that he redeem her and make her his wife. Her heart is broken with gladness. In the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ has bought us for himself out of the curse, out of our destitution, when we were once enemies of him, made us his own beloved bride, and blessed us for all generations through his sacrifice, his death, and his historical resurrection. Mercy Hill, Jesus Christ is the true kinsman redeemer of all who call on him in faith. There is such a terrible trend going on these days about pastors, of pastors just ridding their services of the Old Testament. It's not as applicable. It can't be as relevant. I can't do as many cool-titled sermon series out of the Old Testament. Or maybe the honest thing is I can't make much sense of it or reconcile the two. Can I tell you that the Old Testament is so important, you can't have prophecies fulfilled without prophecies given. What makes the Messiah so incredible is that it's always been the plan. When sin entered Genesis 3, God didn't scramble around going, we must kill the son, we must kill the son. This plan has always been the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has always been the plan. Jesus was the active force that God created the world through in Genesis, and he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end in the book of Revelation. He was there at the beginning, he is there with us now, and he will always be there because that is a sign of his power and his showering us needy roofs with grace. And when it grips you, when that truth grips you, it changes you. When you've been adopted, it changes you. You see, it will not be your good works that redeem you, church, but the good work of someone who has the power and authority to redeem. As we close and and Nick comes up and continues our worship, I, I wanted to share a picture of adoption with you today. In, in this book called Adopted for Life, Russell Moore explains what it was like when he adopted his two Russian sons from a Russian orphanage. And in this illustration, in this picture, he says he and his wife encountered what was possibly the scariest setting they've ever experienced. They've never felt this kind of sadness. They've never felt this kind of fear. So they walk in, and in the Russian orphanage, you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of babies in bassinets, in what looks like a warehouse. And they're getting two sons. And the thing that struck Russell Moore and his wife so heavily 
was when they entered in and they met their sons, they left and they were on their way to fill out more paperwork when they realized that there was no crying coming from the warehouse. There are hundreds of babies in this warehouse. And when Russell Moore asked the advocate, why is there no crying? She said it's because those orphans needing adoption have cried for so long and have had no one come, they've stopped. And it just broke his heart. But at the same time, guess what it did? It gave him so much gratitude that God had adopted him. There is no greater picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ than what happens when someone who was once a stranger, who was once a foreigner, possibly even an enemy, is adopted into the family. And do you know what happens now to his sons who were forever changed by that adoption? Do you know what happens to his sons who now wake up crying in the middle of night? Mercy Hill, they are heard. And the father comes running to them. This is what a kinsman redeemer does. He doesn't just buy you back. He buys you back and he sustains you. He buys you back and he's saying, it's in your weakness I am strong. And, and this is what God has done with his sons and daughters. Think of how revolutionary it is for a Christian family to adopt a young child with a cleft palate from a region of maybe India where most people see that person or that kid as defective. Think of how odd it must seem to American secularists to see Christians adopting a baby whose body trembles with an addiction to the cocaine her mother sent through her bloodstream before birth. Think of the kind of credibility such an action lends to the proclamation of our holy gospel that we will love, we will seek to restore even when it hurts, even when it costs, even when it is comfortable. We will show the kindness that we have been afforded to by our Savior Jesus Christ. May our Savior sacrificial love inspire us to show sacrificial love here now as long as we're living for the glory of our holy God and for our inevitable good being molded and shaped to look more like our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ our kinsman redeemer will you please pray with me Father God we, we are asking for you to give us followers in Jesus Christ, some in here who may not understand a thing I've said, who may not have had their heart changed radically by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are who you said you are. Will you give us that kind of Ruth 2 Christianity? Will you give us the kind of Christianity that is totally free from the need to run around in other fields and get more stuff and pursue other pleasures? Will we just want to stay here in the field of our kinsman redeemer? Will you give us a kind of Christianity that is joyfully content and provided for? If we find ourselves free to spend our lives for the spiritually and physically poor all around us, may you show yourself through obedient messengers. May all glory be handed back to a holy, perfect God. God, may that be so. If there is anything that we need to lay down, there is anything getting in the way, any idol, any fleshly want, any lie that we've coveted, 
any sin that remains unconfessed, if we still feel like we are in control of a life that we are living, if we are holding on to unnecessary shame or guilt, may we be free of this bondage and enter the open arms of a merciful kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. Every other man-made religion in the world says, do this, do this, do this, in order to earn favor. Christ came down to us, said it is finished, and he meant it. Will you be with us not only as we close in worship, but as we attempt each day to bring you glory with our lives. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.